It's Friday, September 14th, and this is The Daily Dive. The Carolina coast is in for it all weekend as Hurricane Florence makes its way to land. It's now at Category 2 and has slowed down, which means the area will face sustained winds and tons of rainfall. The eye of the storm is on track to hit Wilmington, North Carolina, and the situation there could be dire for days. Alex Riley, reporter with Wilmington Star News, joins us to talk about how they will be weathering the storm and if people took caution and evacuated. Next, President Trump has been talking about how ready the administration and FEMA are to respond to Hurricane Florence. He even took to Twitter to say how much a success his response was to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and denied that almost 3,000 people died there after the hurricane hit the island. Rebecca Ballhouse, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why a proper response to hurricanes is so important. Casualties can happen even after the storm has already passed. Finally, it wasn't long ago that we were talking about the magic number that fast food companies have settled on when giving you deals. $5 is all the rage right now, but the company that started it all is getting rid of it. The $5 footlong at Subway is no more. Zlati Meyer, money reporter for USA Today, joins us for why you can't get a $5 sub anymore and what's next. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Many of you who have evacuated from the Carolina coastlines uh, are going to be displaced for a while, uh, particularly where the areas uh, receive the highest amounts of storm surge. Inland flooding kills a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, and that's what we're about to see. So please keep that in mind. Joining us now is Alex Riley, reporter with the Wilmington Star News. Hurricane Florence, we've been covering it all week. It's going to be hitting directly right there in Wilmington. The first question I have is, have people heeded the warnings? Have they evacuated? Have they moved to better ground to weather this hurricane that's headed out there? I've been through some hurricanes. I'm from South Carolina originally, and we've been in Wilmington now uh, for five years. So I've been through hurricanes before and seen ones that were stronger than others and stuff like that. But Thursday morning, you know, obviously before the hurricane was supposed to hit Thursday night, going out to, to where I was supposed to go to for some news conferences and to talk to some people. And I'm driving through main thoroughfares in town that on a weekday are, you know, bumper to bumper and, and slam full of people. And there was a, a stretch. Uh, today, well, I was the only car on the road for about 30 seconds, and it's an area of town that is jam-packed during any time of the day as long as the sun's up. So it's been a little eerie. It's been kind of a, a ghost town. It seems like uh, a lot of people have heeded the warnings, either gotten inland or hunkered down pretty well or out and about. I mean, I'm, I'm driving up and down the street. I can count on one hand the things that are open. You know, one gas station here, one Chinese restaurant there, one sandwich shop there, and that's about it. A lot of boards on windows, and it's pretty closed up right now. People have done uh, pretty well to get out of town. At least that's the good news that people have gotten out of town, uh, and hopefully it could limit any type of casualties that happen while the storm hits. This is always an interesting question for me because you guys, the reporters, are there giving us the news, letting everybody know what's going on. How are you guys, and how is your newsroom weathering the storm? Good so far. Um, you know, we've got a couple of reporters, quote-unquote, out in the field. That doesn't actually mean they're out in the actual field. They're uh, actually at the emergency services center for a couple of the counties that are uh, here, one in Brunswick County and one in New Hanover County, which is where the town of Wilmington is located. And then the rest of us are kind of in the newsroom. I'd say all but maybe two or three staff members are here in the newsroom, and we've brought uh, families and pets and all kinds of stuff. So we're all, uh, all hunkered down and 
got lots of food and water, and I think we might play some poker late tonight and hang out and kind of wait for the storm to pass and get back to work um, as soon as we can. So we still have power. Everything's been good so far, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're just prepared, and uh, everybody's here since we're located so they can talk to each other and figure it out as it comes along. Right there in Wilmington, uh, you guys are right in the crosshairs of the eye of Hurricane Florence. Have you guys seen any federal response yet? I, I mean, obviously... The storm has to come and pass before the recovery efforts can begin. Have you seen any federal response yet? Nothing federal yet. I know that President Trump did call the mayor of Wilmington earlier today. Uh, one of our reporters had written something about that. They were, you know, basically the, the White House was saying, you know, whatever you need, you know, let us know what will be there kind of deal. Uh, once things settle down, the local response has been great. They've done good with the mandatory evacuations in some of the beach communities and the islands. One of the big problems is going to be after the storm obviously hits, there's expected to be tons of flooding. I know that the outskirts of the storm are already hitting and the main brunt of it is going to come later on in the day. What's happened so far? Is it already flooding? What can you tell us about the scene? Not for us. We've done pretty well so far, of course. It's still fairly early. The storm still is a little bit off the coast, but it is obviously headed this way. So we've done pretty well so far. It hasn't been too much rain. I think we'll be okay, uh, but it's, it's going to drop a lot of rain, that's for sure. And, and downtown Wilmington is known to flood. Uh, there are areas in here, obviously, with the beach communities and stuff that are known to flood. Fortunately, uh, there's uh, a lot of high ground, too, a lot of a good solid area. So I think a lot of it will be okay, but uh, there's definitely the threat uh, as you get closer to the coast and closer to the Cape Fear River for some flooding to go on. So we're all keeping an eye on it, and we'll see how it all plays out. You said you've gone through a hurricane before. What is that like? It's weird. They're, they're all a little different. It kind of depends. I mean, we have gone through them here since I've been back uh, in the south. I mean, we've been through, uh, I think, a Category 1. I think my sister got married two years ago, and one we were back in South Carolina for that one. But... You know, the last uh, really, really monster one that I can remember, and almost ironic, the timing is uh, 30 years ago, I went through Hugo, which was obviously uh, devastating to South Carolina. I was living in South Carolina uh, towards Columbia when that hit. And obviously, Columbia not the same as the coast in terms of impact, but I do remember losing power. I do remember trees going down and blocking the roads and flooding even in some of the inland areas. So I know how bad these things can be, and I know the impact that they can have on an area. It's all about being prepared, and I like what I've seen so far. I think people have taken it seriously, both you know, on a personal, being a town level, and then on a uh, governmental, making sure the right things are being done level. I know how tough they can be. Um, you know, every one of them is different, obviously. This one, we were so concerned with the winds early on, you know, 140 mile an hour. It could be a Category 5 by the time it gets here. Now it's dropped down to like a Category uh, 2. The winds are a little bit lower, but that threat of rain is definitely something to keep an eye on. That's what we've seen in other ones, Katrina, Harvey, and stuff like that. So now we're all kind of watching that and, and seeing what happens. So we'll do what we can. Uh, we'll, we'll try to get the story out as best we can and, and try to keep up with everything, and hopefully it's enough to, uh, to make sure people are safe. Stay safe out there, and thank you for staying on the scene and reporting and letting everybody know what's going on over the course of Hurricane Florence. Alex Riley, reporter with the Wilmington Star News. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. The safety of American people is my absolute highest priority. We are sparing no expense. We are totally prepared. We're ready. Puerto Rico was actually our toughest one of all because it's an island. You can't truck things onto it. Everything's by boat. I think that Puerto Rico was an incredible, unsung success. Joining us now is Rebecca Ballhouse, White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal. So as the East Coast is bracing itself for Hurricane Florence, 
talking about all the efforts to get ready and then uh, FEMA getting set up. The president took to Twitter to defend his actions and his response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. He said that 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When he left, there was anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. And then the numbers went up to 3,000 and he blamed it all on Democrats. This is coming off of a report from George Washington University that said that 2,975 excess deaths were uh, linked to Hurricane Maria. What do we know about this study? What do we know about what Donald Trump is saying? What's interesting about what Trump is saying is he's saying that Democrats are exaggerating these numbers to make him look bad. There's two issues with that statement. The first is, as you say, this is a report that was not done by Democrats. It was commissioned by Puerto Rico's governor, who is a Democrat, although not specifically elected through the Democratic Party, but it was done by independent researchers at George Washington University. The second issue with that is that Puerto Rico's government actually received a lot of criticism for nearly a year after the hurricane for actually undercounting the number of fatalities. So Trump is right in that there was this change in how the number of deaths was counted, but the Puerto Rico government received a lot of criticism for seeming like it was maybe trying to cover up the actual number of deaths. And the White House itself, when this report came out last month, estimating that there were about 3,000 deaths linked to the hurricane, put out a statement saying that it supported the Puerto Rico governor's efforts to bolster transparency around this issue and supported the report's findings. The Puerto Rican government was facing that criticism, and they knew something was wrong with that death count. That's exactly why they commissioned this study to find out exactly what happened. And the reason why this story is so important is that's what's going to happen in the Carolinas and on the East Coast where Hurricane Florence is going to hit. It's all about the response. It's why the response is so critical. You know, in a lot of these cases in Puerto Rico, they were left without power. They were left without access to hospitals and access in food and water. And that's all has to do with the response. How do you take care of the people there after a hurricane has happened? Because The only thing you can do when a hurricane hits is prep before and then how you handle the aftermath once it's all passed. So how did the George Washington University look into the deaths there? What what did they find out specifically? What they did was they analyzed death certificates and other mortality data. I think they compared the number of deaths during the designated period with previous mortality patterns. And what they found was that the number of deaths in this period was 22% higher than the number of deaths that would have been expected otherwise. This is all part of what's in their report. And they found that the listed causes of death included cardiac arrest, respiratory failure, septicemia. They have a lot of detail. You can read the report. It's online. The researchers themselves put out a statement saying that they stand by the science with which they conducted their report and pushing back on his criticism. In the report, they also do mention that this is a range of dates from September to February. So uh, uh, the president could be very well right that when he was there, maybe the death count wasn't so high. But we all know the, you know, the photo op that he was taking, he was throwing paper towels like basketballs to to people at his press conference there. But this is deaths associated with Hurricane Maria. This is what happened after and the result of 
the lack of response there. That's exactly right. And I think it's, as you say, the issue is often not the deaths that happen in the moment, but what happens in the year afterward. And the Trump administration got a lot of criticism for being too slow to respond in the wake of the hurricane, not sending enough people to the island, not being quick enough to help rebuild infrastructure, speeding medical supplies, food and water to the communities there. In fact, Puerto Rico didn't restore power to many parts of the island until last month, meaning that some residents on the island were without power for nearly a year after the hurricane. And that's not all down to the Trump administration to take care of. A lot of the emergency relief efforts are state and local efforts. Trump has spent a lot particularly a lot of this week, bragging about his work there. He called it the unsung success of his administration. And so I think to be claiming that kind of credit and then not willing to accept the consequences, the fact that 3,000 people did die, according to this report, says something about what he's willing to take credit for and not take credit for. What has the reaction been? We know what Democrats are going to say, but what has reaction been on the Republican side to this study and to the president's comments? He got a surprising amount of pushback from Republicans who are usually pretty reluctant to criticize the president. Paul Ryan, who particularly doesn't like criticizing the president, said that he has no reason to dispute the numbers from the study. He said casualties don't make a person look bad. Rick Scott, the Florida governor who's running for Senate and who has been a particularly close ally of the president, said in a tweet that he disagreed with the president and criticized his comments and commented on the sadness of how many people had died. Yeah, and even when Paul Ryan was saying casualties don't make a person look bad, it's the response and the efforts that you put into it. And largely, a lot of people were criticizing the White House just for not being present enough in those recovery efforts. And as you said, a lot of it is state and local things that need to be handled there, but they are at U.S. territory. They are an island. So they needed that extra help. And it just seemed like they weren't getting it. That's right. And there was actually a report earlier this month by the Government Accountability Office that looked at the the federal government's emergency response efforts in the last year, where we saw a lot of hurricanes, a lot of catastrophic wildfires and things like that. And it admits in the report that by the time Maria hit Puerto Rico, the government's emergency response abilities were down to the bottom of the barrel in staffing because it just happened later in the year and after so much else had happened. So that report, which is also an an independent government report, also acknowledges flaws in that response effort and now has some audits pending that are going to look at issues like the restoration of power in Puerto Rico and, and things like that. Rebecca Ballhouse, White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Lati Meyer, money reporter for USA Today. It was not long ago that we had you on the podcast to talk about this magic number that a lot of fast food companies are using right now, the $5 number, because it's just so easy. It it sits well in the brain. It's a, it's a value. It's a bargain. And Subway was at the forefront of this thing with their $5 footlong menu. Now we're hearing that it might be going away. What do we know about that? That's true. Subway Restaurants is one of the restaurant chains that put the $5 deal on the map. And 
what the new CEO, Trevor Haynes, told USA Today in an exclusive interview was that it will now be up to each franchisee to decide whether or not he or she wants to sell the sub. I remind you that Subway restaurants, unlike many of the other fast food and fast casual chains in this country, is 100% franchise-owned. Yeah, that's great. So it's really up to each individual. And the $5 footlong had disappeared for a few years. The chain brought it back last winter, but the franchisees were not happy about it. They were complaining about slim margins. They weren't earning what they wanted to offer each sandwich, and it seems like that company has listened to what these franchisees were upset about. That's really interesting that they were fighting back, and as they are franchise-owned uh, 100%, everywhere across the country, the margins are going to be different. The top-selling sandwich is going to be different. So if you're doing this campaign across the country where they're all $5, I mean, uh, some of these guys are going to be hit or miss. Right. And one thing that Trevor Haynes pointed out was the economics in California is different from the economics in Arkansas. So a $5 footlong for a Arkansas franchisee is perhaps a little different when it comes to looking at the bottom line than for the franchisee in, say, Los Angeles or San Francisco. Trevor Haynes is brand new at this job, too. He just took the helmet in like June, I think it was, right? Yes, he did. He took over after Suzanne Greco, who was the sister of Subway co-founder Fred DeLuca's retirement. He's Australian, although he has worked for the company for 12 years. This is one of the major moves he's making as he gets his sea legs. One of the little nuggets in your story, which I really liked, I didn't know that the original name of it was called Pete Super Submarines. Yeah, well, this is a company that's been around for 53 years, and they've gone through various iterations to become the, the international powerhouse that they are. Today, they have about 44,000 locations worldwide. Of those, 25,000 are in the U.S. So this is a major player. However, they are privately held, so we don't have a lot of the financial information and sales information and growth data that we have for some of the other big players, like, say, McDonald's or Burger King or Starbucks. You spoke to a couple of consulting groups also, and they talk about how since they're not doing ground beef and burger, you know, cheap burgers like uh, other competitors, their main meats, their hams, roast beefs and chickens, those are a little more expensive. So it's going to be a, like a wide variety of possibilities that you might be seeing. That's true, because there's only so much they can cut. Right. The meats that they primarily rely on at Subway, as you said, are hamburger, beef, and chicken, and those are pricier than ground beef, which is, of course, what all the hamburger chains use. So it's not exactly a playing field that is 100% even. But like I said, they're, they're now making this move for bolder taste, and they're hoping that that might be it. And another thing they're doing that's a little bit out of the box, and they began this back in March, is they've introduced wraps. When we think of the Subway sandwich, we tend to think of that long, large, mini loaf of bread. That's not always the case now. You can, in fact, try a wrap. And another thing they're experimenting with, if we want to talk about carb delivery systems, is paninis. They're trying paninis out in California to see if that might be something that the Subway customer would be interested in. And the last thing they're going to be doing is redesigning a bunch of restaurants. They are talking about um, focusing on their new design. They're talking about bolder colors. They're talking about their, you know, their green, what they call vegetable-inspired palette. Um, but again, as a company that is set up 100% uh, franchised, will that really be a, another expense that a franchisee will want to pay? They are obliged to do... Um, makeovers every few years, but this is just yet another cost that franchisees still smarting from the reintroduction of the $5 footlong before they backed away from that. 
not really something they might necessarily be on board with 100%. It will be interesting to see how uh, many across the chain will choose to sort of jump in seat first, 100%. Well, I'm going to miss my regular sandwich, and I'm going to miss the song probably most of all. Uh, Zlati Meyer, money reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.